0: This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in the show, we'll talk about American Utopia. That's David Byrne's new concert film, directed by Spike Lee. It's about immigrants from many places making music together in a dark time. We'll talk about it with our TV critic, Ella Taylor. But first... Maybe the November election will have a big enough vote for Biden so that it can't be challenged in court. Maybe the Republicans won't dispute the outcome, but maybe they will. We have, we've had other disputed elections in our history. Of course, we had the Supreme Court stopping the count in Florida in 2000. And there was another one, much less well-known, the election of 1876. For some comparisons, we turn to Eric Foner. He taught American history at Columbia for a long time. He's won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, and the Lincoln Prize for his work, most of which has been about the Civil War era and Reconstruction. His most recent book is The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. We talked about it here. He's written widely for the New York Times op-ed page and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. Eric, welcome back.
1: Right. Hello, John. Nice to talk to
0: you. Well, the 1876 election came only 11 years after the end of the Civil War, and the political legacy of the Civil War was still an open question, especially the future of the Southern Republicans, the thousands of black officials who had been elected to state office. After black men were given the right to vote by the 15th Amendment and then protected by the occupying forces of the Union Army, remind us where things stood at the beginning of 1876, in the South and in the North.
1: Well, unfortunately, Reconstruction was waning by 1876. In fact, in that year, there were only three southern states, uh, South Carolina, Florida, and Louisiana, that was still under the control of the Republican Party and biracial uh, political figures, etc., All the other southern states were now back under
2: the rule of white supremacist Democrats. Uh, It's worth
1: noting that the parties have sort of uh, exchanged clothes over the (laughs) past century and a half. The Democrats were the party of white supremacy back then, the Republicans, the party of Lincoln, Emancipation, Reconstruction, and Black rights. So, uh, Reconstruction was waning, uh, but uh, nonetheless, it still existed in some places, and there were these constitutional amendments on the books meant to protect the civil and political rights of black Americans.
0: So, when the votes were counted after the 1876 election, although the Republicans had been in power for, what, 16 years, now the Democratic candidate, Samuel Tilden, clearly won the popular vote. But I've noticed he did not become president. What happened?
1: That can happen, as we know. Uh, However, I must um, add that Tilden only won the popular vote because there was significant uh, voter suppression, violence, intimidation of black voters in many places of the South. In a fair election, uh, Hayes, Rutherford Hayes, the Republican candidate, would certainly have carried Uh, more of the southern states and more black people would have been allowed to vote. Nonetheless, yes, the return suggested that Tilden had won the popular vote. Uh, It was in dispute exactly who had won the uh, electoral college vote because for those three states that I mentioned, South Carolina, uh, Florida, and Louisiana, both parties claimed to have carried those states. Both claimed to have elected the governor. Two governors were uh, ensconced in each of those states. Uh, each one sent a report of the electoral vote of that state up to Washington. So both, So the first question was, which of these reports was legitimate? Who had actually carried those states?
0: Now, the Constitution did anticipate disputed elections and established a procedure by which Congress would deal with problems like this. What, was, what did the founding fathers say should happen in a disputed
1: election? Uh, I have to disagree with you there, John, which I rarely do. I don't think the Constitution <laughs> is particularly clear about this. Uh, it's, it said what would happen if nobody got a majority of the electoral vote, then the House of Representatives would decide who was president. But in this case, that's not the issue. The issue is which are the legitimate returns? How do you decide who had actually carried uh, these three states? And so Congress went around the Constitution and established something unexpected, or that is to say not anticipated by the founders, an electoral commission of 15 uh, members, five from the House, five from the Senate, five from the Supreme Court. They were supposed to look at the reports from the different states and figure out who had carried those states. And whoever carried those three states was going to have a majority of the Electoral College. Um, It got a little weird because uh, basically there were seven Republicans, seven Democrats, and one Justice uh, David uh, Davis of, of Illinois on the Supreme Court, who was an independent. Uh, and it was assumed that Davis would basically pick the president because other, the others would vote on a partisan basis. But what happened was the Republicans pulled a fast one in Illinois, and they elected Davis to the Senate, right, as all this is going on. And Davis didn't really want to be on the Supreme Court. He wanted to be in the Senate. So he resigned, and uh, a Republican uh, justice was put in his place, and therefore the Republicans had an 8-7 to seven majority on the Electoral Commission, And by some fluke, all the disputed electoral votes were decided as having going to Hayes, the Republican, by an eight to seven vote. Um, That didn't end the whole problem, though, because you still needed both houses to sort of certify this. And the Democrats said they would refuse. And in the end, it was really settled by behind the scenes negotiations between uh, leaders of the two parties, the so-called bargain of 1877. Uh, where basically the Democrats said, all right, Hayes can become president and the Republicans said, all right, the Democrats will now be recognized as controlling the three disputed states. So all the southern states are now uh, under the control of the Democratic Party, and that's often seen as the end of Reconstruction as part of the bargain of 1877. Again, all outside the Constitution.
0: Uh, Did anyone uh, consider bringing in the army, a military solution to this uh, deadlock?
1: There was a lot of talk of civil war, march on Washington, Tilden or Blood, things like this. Uh, This is 11 years, as you pointed out, since the end of the civil war, and people were not that uh, interested in having another war. Uh, So it was all political maneuvering, a lot of rhetoric. uh, But you know, it, it established a kind of long period of Republican control of the White House, but Democratic control of the entire South. Uh, of and course, the losers, big... of course, are Black Americans whose constitutional rights were severely limited after this.
0: And did anyone consider what is today's go-to solution? Asking the Supreme Court to rule on which delegation to accept, which ballots should be counted, who should be president?
1: Not really. Now, they did put five members of the court on the Electoral Commission, but the court as an institution was not held in high regard at that time. Uh, The Dred Scott decision from 1857 had completely discredited the Supreme Court in the eyes of northerners and African-Americans throughout the country. So uh, nobody said, all right, let's just punt this to the Supreme Court, let them figure it out.
0: So the solution was that the Republicans were given the presidency in exchange for an agreement to end Reconstruction in the three remaining Republican-controlled states of the South. What happened to the principle established in the 14th and 15th Amendments that the federal government would protect the fundamental rights of American citizens?
1: Yeah, that went by the wayside, Uh, not immediately, but over the course of the next generation, the the, the effort or the idea of enforcing these rights in the South for blacks was pretty much abandoned by Northern uh, Republicans. Uh, it took a while. It wasn't the next day after Hayes was inaugurated. Uh, Hayes did, So uh, people often said, well, Hayes removed the troops from the South. That's not quite right. What he did was say the troops who are remaining in the South, which wasn't very many, um, Will no longer intervene in southern politics they will not affect they will not deal with the problem of blacks they in fact there were troops guarding the republican claimants to the to the governorship in those states. Hayes ordered them back to their barracks not to leave the south but just to stay out of southern politics uh, from then on
0: now historians know that eighteen seventy seven had a Second major event, in addition to this so-called compromise that that su- resolved the disputed election, there was a strike in 1877. Tell us about that.
1: The Great Railroad Strike, the first national strike in American history. It spread across the Great uh, Trunk Railroads from the east to the west, even into the south. Um, it was eventually suppressed by troops sent in by President Hayes. Uh, That's when some troops were removed from the South. They were told to go from the South up to Pittsburgh and Chicago and St. Louis to help put down the great railroad strike. And of course, many people saw this as maybe symbolic of a shift. Now that the slavery issue was over, the fundamental problem confronting the country was the battle between capital and labor, which took a very violent turn in the United States in the last quarter of the 19th century troops were used to protect the rights of and, property but not the rights of African Americans
0: and remind us where the Republican Party stood in this change
1: uh, most of them stood in favor of uh, suppressing the railroad strike the Republican Party had evolved into a party dominated by well-to-do corporation uh, you know officials most of Hayes's cabinet were railroad lawyers people like that uh, there was still some of the old idealism around, but little by little, the Republicans became basically the party of northern big business.
0: And did that make the Democrats de facto the party of the working man in the North?
1: Not a hundred percent. Let's put it that way. They were the party more of white supremacy, north and south, so, and and also of um, you know of of banking. They were they were very tied into Wall Street, New York bankers. Republicans were more tied into manufacturing. The the Industrial Revolution, which was going on at that time, uh, they backed a very high tariff to protect uh, industry, etc. But these issues were overshadowing by this point uh, the, the the legacy of the Civil War and emancipation.
0: Meanwhile, back in the southern states, what happened to black people? We 1876 did not mark the end of all voting by black people. It took it took a while.
1: Right, no, there's a slow erosion of all these rights, not 100% uh, at the moment. It's not until the 1890s, really, that a full the full system of Jim Crow, as we call it, was imposed in the South, which included disfranchisement, that is, taking the constitutionally guaranteed right to vote away from black men, um, the, uh, you know, Racial segregation, which, of course, the Supreme Court upheld as not a violation of the 14th Amendment uh, as long as there was separate but equal Uh, lynching, widespread lynching in the South uh, from 1880 up through 1940 or even later. Uh, Collapse of black education in many southern states, an entire system of white supremacy, not the same as slavery. Uh, Slavery is its own system, but certainly Nowhere near the aspiration for equality that black people had articulated uh, in the aftermath of the Civil War.
0: And how important was violence in establishing this new regime in the South, starting with voting and politics and then in the other areas?
1: Every election in the South was violent. In every election in the South, there were efforts, violent efforts, to intimidate blacks, to make it difficult for them to vote, to suppress the black vote. In fact, in the 1890s, when the when the Southern states passed laws disenfranchising black voters, many people said, "Well, this is a reform. You know, this is actually a step forward because when you know our elections are so violent and unfair, it, it makes us look bad." Now uh, we'll have a legal process of preventing black people from voting. We won't need to have mobs at the polls and all that kind of thing. A strange kind of reform, but um, you know, but but certainly. Uh, Politics in the South was nowhere near what you might consider, you know, a small d democratic politics.
0: And violence in the North was also a factor in these strikes, not just the army being moved out of the South and into Pittsburgh and Chicago and St. Louis, but the formation of these citizens' militias to fight the strikers Tell us a
1: little about that yeah, well, they did have citizens militias, but the problem with citizen militias is their citizens have the lo- of the locality so for example, yes, what happened in, in Pittsburgh, the militia refused to fire on the strikers, which meant that they a railroad men had to bring in tr- troops from Philadelphia who weren't part of the local community in order to suppress the uh, the strikes as long as you have a community based uh, uh, you know, military force, it, they're not necessarily going to be that anxious to start shooting their neighbors. So you get a much more professionalized National Guard created in this uh, generation. Uh, you also get the building of these armories uh, in northern cities to, uh, so that there are guns available uh, if uh, troops are needed to put down strikes. You know, this was a very violent period of American history, not to mention the fact that there's the Indian wars going on in the West at this time. And some of the troops taken out of the South are being sent west to fight Native Americans and, uh, put, you know, push them onto reservations and everything. So
0: now we need to talk about today. Uh, of course, we all remember that Trump told the Proud Boys to stand by you're talking about uh, violence in past elections. Clearly, he is contemplating bringing out violent young men organized in the present elections. What do you think?
1: <laughs> I'm against it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there's a lot of talk of that. I read in the New York Times today an article about, uh, I think, Erie County, Pennsylvania, a Trump stronghold where people are arming themselves. It, it, not for highly clear reasons, but because they think there's going to be some kind of uh, violent end to the election of 2020. Uh, there are certainly these armed uh, white supremacist groups, which the president encourages, you know, but even on a slightly less violent level, there's a long history of Republican operatives going to polls, trying to intimidate black voters, you know, uh, William Rehnquist, the ex uh, chief justice of the Supreme Court was involved in that sort of thing earlier in his career, trying to, you know, going up to people and telling them, you know, if you vote illegally, it's a felony. You'll be in jail for 20 years. And that ID doesn't look very good to me, you know, trying to get people just to stop uh, and go home. So we'll see. Now, uh, the end result here might be disputed in the end. I don't know, (laughs) like 1876.
0: Of course, in 1876, the, the dispute, despite all the violence, ended up in Congress with this Congress establishing this commission, now it seems that the Trump administration will appeal to the Supreme Court. That seems to be the biggest difference.
1: It's a little complicated. That, in fact, it's, it's a lot complicated. It's so complicated that no one actually knows what, what might happen. In the 1880s, because of 1876, Congress passed a law to explain what needed to be done if there were disputes. But it's so convoluted that no one can even understand what is supposed to happen? What would happen today, for example, if the Republican dominated uh, election board of Wisconsin says Trump carried Wisconsin, but the governor, the Democratic governor of Wisconsin says, no, he didn't actually. Uh, the, the Republicans will throw out mail ballots and other ballots and say, look, Trump's got the vote and the, the, the governor will refuse to certify it. Both those things have to happen. Uh, for Congress to accept the electoral votes of Wisconsin. Um, And there could be lawsuits about the validity of absentee votes and and, and, um, mail ballots. You know, one of the things we forget is there have been many disputed elections in American history for the House of Representatives. In the 19th century, there were plenty of congressional hearings about who had won a congressional seat. The loser would charge fraud, would charge violence, sometimes the apparent winner was thrown out in midterm and Congress decided the guy who lost actually won. So there was, but there is no procedure, that's determined by the House of Representatives, there is no procedure today about what to happen, what would happen if there were these disputed returns from different states. Uh, You know, the Constitution says the vice president will count the electoral votes. Some people say, well, then Pence can just decide for himself which votes. uh, He'll take the Republican votes and count them. It's really uncharted waters here. Bush v. Gore was one small, I mean, it had big effects, but the one small issue, should the counting of votes, the recounting of votes in, uh, in Florida, continue in some counties, but not in others? and the Supreme Court made up a new rule that there has to be sort of equality of county. You know, but that's not in the Constitution, the equal treatment to counties. And in fact, uh, Justice Scalia said very explicitly, no, the reason we're doing this is to make it clear that Bush, Bush's election ought to be respected by people so that Bush doesn't come in over a, under a cloud of illegitimacy. Uh, that's not really the role of the Supreme Court to make sure the president looks good. Uh, but it could happen again, uh, although again, a lot of these are state issues they 're state uh, laws they're state because remember there 's no national voting system in this country. every state has its own rules about who can vote, how to register, who counts it, who sends it to Washington. So a lot of these things would be determined in state courts, and no one knows who who what 's the composition of those courts you 'd have to study carefully to see, in other words. As in 1876, if there are disputes about who actually carried a state, there's no clear path forward, uh, at, at least from the constitutional point of view.
0: There's no clear path forward. That's why we're hoping Biden will have a big enough vote to avoid a disputed outcome. Eric Foner, thanks for talking with us today.
1: Great to talk to you, John. <laughs>
0: It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in LA on KPFK and online anytime you want it at TrumpWatchPodcast.com. Making music together in a dark time. That's David Burns' Utopia. And now there's a movie about it. It's playing on HBO Max. It's called American Utopia. For comment, we turn, of course, to Ella Taylor. She's a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared at the LA Weekly, The New York Times, and at npr.org. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back.
2: Good afternoon, John.
0: Well, let's talk about the new David Byrne concert film.
2: Well, um, I am a huge fan of all kinds of concert movies. Um, The reason being because no matter what kind of conflict and nonsense is going on off stage, you just get this wonderful sense of people coming together and and making art of all different kinds and really enjoying themselves and each other. This, that's why I love flash mob videos as well. It produces the same kind of uh, releases all the endorphins you can think of. Uh, And my all-time favorite, perhaps until I saw this movie, is Stop Making Sense, which is also a David Byrne movie directed beautifully by Jonathan Demme. And the new film, uh, which plays on HBO Max, is also beautifully directed by Spike Lee, who really knows how to do a straight-up concert movie. Uh, David Byrne, in an interview once... Said once remarked that as a he thinks that as a child he was, quote, borderline Asperger's. And uh, I've always thought that that describes not, you know, just about his personality, which of which I know very little, other than the rather alarming details that have come out about his treatment of his band but also of his art, uh, which he uses to beautiful advantage here in this movie. It is a concert movie at at every level um, of his Broadway show. And uh, he has uh, he performs these wonderfully mechanistic movements that remind you a little bit of that teenage dance where, I forget what it's called, where people pretend that they're machines. And he does this with a exponentially growing band of musicians of all races and also some of whom are immigrants. And it's clear, even though they they make the most wonderful music together, um, they play, sing and dance all at the same time. And the atmosphere that it creates of one is one of pure joy. David Byrne rarely smiles but right at the end of this movie, he does smile and say thank you in the most humble and, and heartfelt way. And you just want to burst into tears uh, or hug him and you just one suspects that he wouldn't necessarily welcome that. <laughs> <He said laughs> also that uh, we dance this way because it feels so damn good and it looks so damn good. There's just the total feeling of, of joy. We danced
0: it this way because it feels so good. We would dance better if we only could. So there's also that modesty to it that's so appealing.
2: And yet, you know, it's extremely tightly choreographed. Um, and actually, it looks great. I mean, there's one dancer in particular, an African-American woman whose name I don't know, who is just radiates not only skill, I mean, every single move is synchronized, uh, but also, uh, you know, just total happiness with what she's doing. It just feels completely natural uh, in her case. His theme is the interplay between isolation and connection, both personal and political and cultural, and the movie kind of gropes its way towards connection uh, in the most delightful way. Um, It's also a showcase for his most famous numbers that we love, those of us who actually had an LP of Speaking in Tongues, which I did. And so many of the lyrics feel astonishingly and eerily apt today. I don't mean in the, you know, just the, the this is all about Donald Trump way, but more, you know, same as it ever was climate change, all I want is to breathe and burning down the house as the election comes up. Um, And yet he doesn't belabor that, he simply presents it. So it's both the pleasure for those who are Talking Heads fans, um, Mm -hmm. but it also carries a a very deftly handled uh, underlying theme. He's very, very good, always has been very good at melding the brainy with the pop. So that you can both feel good and think interestingly um, about his shows all at the same time. Um, it has a beautiful ending, um, which is all spikely, where they He comes down. First of all, they parade through the audience, which is an old trick, but I fall for it every time. It's just delightful. Everybody's so happy and standing up. And then out they go through the the stage door, where, of course, there's a small crowd waiting. And he just gives them a bashful grin. Everybody gets on bikes, uh, which is, of course, David Burns' thing, um, and bikes through the New York City streets. And you just want to weep with joy at this uh, conciliatory image. I just loved every moment of it.
0: I have one question about the ending. For this joyous finale, they have everyone in the band and everyone in the audience singing together, but what they're singing is we're on a road to nowhere. He is very much aware of the political world that we live in and and, uh, I hope he's wrong that we're on a road to nowhere. I talk about for a minute about the look of of the the concert show. This is a minimalist stage. Everyone is wearing a David Byrne gray suit I read a little bit about the the gray suits, which, of course, are a signature of David Byrne's, but now everybody looks like David Byrne. Uh, I don't know if that's part of utopia or not. (laughs) He said that at the beginning of Talking Heads, he wanted the band to wear clothing that was completely neutral so that all that would be left was the music. And his first idea was that the Manhattan businessmen walking around wearing anonymous uniform gray suits, he thought was um, an inspiring example of how you could look completely neutral. But he said, I soon realized when it comes to clothing, it is next to impossible to find something completely neutral. Every outfit carries some cultural baggage of some kind. In In the American utopia everybody wears the same gray suit which you could say is you know gray uniformity but actually somehow it brings out their individuality and how beautifully they move and how they move together and how they move as individuals so it's what we get is kind of the opposite of gray uniformity uh, despite the look
2: yes and uh, and the fact is that the, the fact that they're all different races and physical sizes i mean some of the best dancers are quite large Yeah. very, very striking. I just want to say a little bit about the backdrop uh, relating to what you said, which looks from far away, it's it's this shimmering um, things that from far away looks like spaghetti, (laughs) but when you get close up as it does in one significant part of the movie that I don't want to explain, it looks like chain mail. (laughs) <laughs> me anyway, um, I don't know whether that's what he int- intends. And Byrne is always enigmatic. Um, he is uh, a very handsome guy. He's Scottish and looks he looks like a cross between as he gets older, he looks like a cross between Jimmy Stewart, um, very patrician and and uh, very handsome, and a Tom Ford model in the gray <laughs> in the gray suit. There is something. <laughs> Very corporate, and yet he's constantly subverting that um, that conformity with the show because the musicians who are are all very full of joy and so on, um, very distinctive looking, their haircuts are amazing. Um, it just is uh, a kind of multi-culti, um, perfectly synchronized muddle in a way. Um, yes. I mean, it's and not a muddle, but...
0: And the one other element that you notice about David Burns' utopia is that. Nobody wears shoes. Everybody is barefoot.
2: Everybody is barefoot, and I'm sure part of that is to, you know, it's for comfort's sake. But um, it's another form of subversion of of their top halves, which are, uh, you know, all wearing these suits. I wanted one of those suits <laughs> um, because they are very elegant and they're, they're built to accommodate the the very different bodies. In this, this is they don't look like a dance company. This is in very important ways a film about race. Uh, and I don't think it ever uses the word race. <laughs> um, but it's there in the, in the cast of, of musicians, singers, and dancers. He introduces them at one point. A bunch of them are immigrants, which is making a very big point, <laughs> a political point right now. Um, and Spike Lee shoots it that way to emphasize the you know, the diversity of the cast. So it's, it's I can't recommend it highly enough.
0: David Byrne's concert film American Utopia is playing now on HBO Max. The film that's opening this week on Friday that I'm very interested in is uh, the Sofia Coppola film starring Bill Murray called On the Rocks. It opens on Apple TV on Friday. Of course, I was one of the you know, millions of people who loved Lost in Translation, that's the, the sort of early Sofia Coppola film where Bill Murray is the aging superstar alone in Tokyo to make a whiskey commercial who meets the young, confused, drifting Scarlett Johansson, not yet a superstar. Uh, so here, Sofia Coppola is reunited with Bill Murray, again, as an older man helping out a younger woman, in this case, uh, his daughter. Uh, Tell us, you have seen On the Rocks. Tell us about On the Rocks.
2: Well, it's not lost in translation. Um, A film that I liked a great deal, although I did somewhat uh, buy the criticism of that movie that it stereotypes uh, Japanese uh, culture and and people, but it was a very delightful movie in part because of its two leads. Uh, And Bill Murray, Murray is delightful here as the somewhat feckless father um, of a young married woman who's played by um, Rashida Jones. She's she's also very wonderful. She's playing a very sweet young woman um, who's married to a a businessman um, who's played by Marlon Wayans. So it's interesting that the two leads are both African-American. It has a, a very thin, and somewhat overfamiliar plot. It's like marriage story, but the funny version. <laughs> it is a romantic comedy of sorts. Um, they're a very well-to-do couple. They have two adorable little girls of whom I would like to have seen more. And uh, everything is going well until uh, Rashida Jones character finds, Um, some women's, a bag of women's toiletries in her husband's suitcase. He travels a lot. Uh, And of course, that sets off a whole um, panic and anxiety and paranoia about whether he's having an affair with another woman. So it's a little bit like a a cross between a Nicole Holofsen Uh, Manhattan movie and a Woody Allen Manhattan movie. It's very nicely shot and so on. Sofia Coppola is always um, very beautiful. It has an extraordinarily lovely um, multiple mixed score that I liked a lot. The twist is that, I'm not giving away the end because there's not much to give away, is that her father, uh, who is one of these feckless types who uh, apparently abandoned her mother and who everybody else in the family hates, but her because she gets him, is convinced that there is an affair going on. Of course, he would be because that's what he would do in this situation. (laughs) And he persuades her to go on a kind of road trip. Um, to where the husband is is go, wherever the husband is going to spy on him and expose this affair. What instead they find um, is their relationship, and that's what the film turns on. Bill Murray, who is a great scene stealer, is playing a great st- scene stealer here, and he's as delightful as ever. There's one point in I th- think it's. Uh, Yes, it's got to be in Mexico where the husband has gone on business, where where Murray sings Mexica, the full um, Mexica, Mexicali rose. Um, to an audience of appreciative women. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's just there for its own sake. And it's very delightful. But this guy is completely infuriating, because you can't, he's so slippery, he's constantly changing, he charms a a policeman into forgiving him um, uh, an incident with his car, his idea of traveling incognito around the country is a bright red convertible. <laughs> um, <laughs> one thing the film is good at, and I am making more of a case for it than I thought I had, um, is getting into marital anxieties of this kind. Um, Rashida Jones underplays the character very nicely. She doesn't really think he's having an affair, even though her father, um, her father clearly is trying to persuade her that that he does. Uh, But uh, there's a very nice realization of the kind of anxieties that crop up in modern marriage when partners are often apart, um, where the husband is traveling for business and where Mm. the new sexuality is a lot more permissive than than it used to be. So that's a nice thing about it. The problem is the, you know, it's full of, the plot is both very thin and full of contrivances. We discover what's really going on going on at the end of the movie, and it's no great surprise, but it feels very slight. Sofia Coppola is primarily an observer as a filmmaker, and she's very, very good at that, and and she's good at that here, but it doesn't really go very far. The message seems to be all men are babies, (laughs) Um, and, you know, that's not terribly interesting. The fact that nothing is made of the... the, um, The fact that these are two wealthy, this is a wealthy black couple is on the one hand, I think is a very good idea because so many people think that there's no such thing as a wealthy black couple. And they're not walk, walking around being black all day, which is a great relief compared mm-hmm. to a lot of other black movies. On the other hand, you do want something to be made of that that fact. And there's a little bit about the interracial parents, but not very much. So on the whole, I found it, um, you know, it, both reeking of, of privilege, um, the, whole, the movie rather than the couple, and, uh, you know, not... Terribly involving.
0: Ella Taylor, always a pleasure to talk to you about movies on TV.
2: Very much enjoyed myself, John.
0: Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Rai Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.